Good morning, everybody. Good morning. What we're talking about today is not going to be intuitive as something good in your life. For example, and we can see it across society, have you noticed that even biblical spiritual virtues have become part of our everyday life in terms of like clothing and decor? You'll see people wearing shirts that say things like, be a nice human. It feels like a low bar and that could mean a lot of different things, but nobody's arguing with that shirt. Nobody's going up to that person wearing that shirt saying like, don't tell me what kind of human to be. You know, it's just like, it's a nice sentiment. We can all agree on it. It's intuitive. It feels right. It feels good. But even decor, I was uh, traveling recently, went to a coffee store, went to the bathroom of the coffee store, and they had a sign on the wall that said, kindness matters. And I'm like, you know what, bathroom wall, you are right. That's much better than what a lot of bathroom walls say. Kindness does matter. That's kind of a, it's a nice sentiment. Nobody's going to argue with that. We, we write things like that and we put it on our walls. Or even a, a, a biblical virtue like forgiveness is something that you can decorate your house with. Like, it's a good thing. Nobody's arguing these things. These are good things. I like them, and I think we all like them. Some of you have shirts in your closet that, that espouse these biblical virtues. They're just good. The virtue we're going to talk about today is not something that feels intuitive. By that, I don't mean that it feels immoral, although there's an aspect of that that could be true, but I don't know that any of us would just kind of like see this virtue and kind of assume that, oh yes, that is a good thing, we must all want that. We can kind of get behind it, but there's something about it that feels odd, which is why it's the strangest virtue, and because it feels odd, because it doesn't seem intuitive, we don't take it seriously. It's one of those strange biblical commands that's all over Scripture that we're kind of like, eh, you know, eh, I don't know. I want to introduce you to your new favorite Bible verse, and it's in Psalm 127. This is the part you're going to be familiar with. The part you're not as familiar with is verse 2. So this, this verse talks about human agency. And it's just this idea that as humans, we think we can accomplish all that stuff, but we really don't get anything done unless God is allowing it to be done. So no matter what we think we can accomplish in the world, we can get everybody on the same page, and we can all do the same things, none of it matters unless God is blessing that endeavor. So unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers that build it build in vain. God can be like, you know what, I don't want that house being built, and I'm just going to send rain, and nobody's going to do any work, or you're not going to be able to get that thing done. It's not going to happen unless I'm allowing it to happen. Unless the Lord guards the city. Those guys that stand guard, doesn't matter. You can have the best security system in the world. You can lay awake at night, and you can sleep with a gun under your pillow. If God's like, hey, tonight's the night your house is going to get broken into, it's going to get broken into. doesn't matter. You think you have all this control. You don't have all this control. You think you're going to get your to-do list done, and that's going to put you on top of the world whatever, unless God's behind it, making it happen doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter. This is actually a psalm of Solomon. Not, it's not one of David's, and he's just saying the truth. We like to think that we've got our plans and everything all scheduled and lined out, but unless God's behind it, making it happen, not going to happen. But I want you to see verse 2, because this is your new favorite verse. Ready for this? I'm serious. Like, if you're one of those people that likes to underline verses of the Bible, this is, a, this is one you want, all right? It is in vain that you rise up early, Man, I really, I thought if I put a pause in there, somebody's going to say amen, because that's, like that's like a good spot for an amen, right? No? You guys are real early risers? If you're real early risers, why weren't you here at the first service, huh? <laughs> Those people didn't amen either, and they were like, what do you mean it's in vain? We're here. We're sh- we showed up. It is in vain you rise up early. 
No, we got a few. Okay. <laughs> and, and go late to rest. So don't stay up late either. You can st- get up early. You can stay up late. But all those things don't matter. And I love this phrasing. And eat the bread of anxious toil. You can work yourself to the bone. None of that matters. But listen, for he gives sleep to his beloved. Some of you are like, yes, I'm about to take a power nap for the next 20 minutes or so, Patrick. So <laughs> God is blessing me. He gives sleep to his beloved. Isn't that a good verse? Like just to know that, hey, God's in charge. God's in control. We can plan. We can eat the bread of anxious toil. We could try to make it all happen. We could try to will it into existence. We can manifest it, whatever it is. But God is the one that blesses. We don't, yeah, I mean, he just gives, he gives sleep to his beloved. That's so good. It's such a good verse. The moral virtue that I don't think we understand as intuitive is this idea this idea of rest. It's starting to become more well understood, but just in general, I don't think we understand rest as a moral virtue. A, th- a theology of napping, right? I mean, that's like you guys are going to in- you guys are going to live out scripture this afternoon after lunch. You're going to be like, I'm going to put that sermon to practical use because I'm going to take a nap and I'm going to be beloved by God for my rest. Rest is a moral virtue. Now, I know some of you are like, "Ah, okay, Patrick, um, really a moral virtue? And see, I told you, it doesn't seem intuitive, does it? It doesn't seem like that's actually something that is a moral issue. Because some of you are thinking, okay, Patrick, you're saying rest is a moral issue, so is not resting an immoral thing to do? Is that what you're saying? Well, riddle me this. Are you your best self when you're tired? Do you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Do you exhibit those things when you're tired? No. Rest may not be the virtue that we think of it like in the fruit of the Spirit, but it certainly allows us to live those things out. Is it immoral not to rest? I don't know. Maybe debatable. But it certainly doesn't make us the best God-given version of ourselves when we're exhausted and tired and eating the bread of anxious toil. All right, some of you are like, okay, Patrick, I'm intrigued, but I'm, uh, I'm a little hesitant to, uh, to really buy into the idea that rest is a virtue. I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm that way too. I'm not much of a napper. My mom tells me when I was a little baby, she used to have to like squeeze me, hold me tight because I would just wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and try to keep myself awake. That's not, that's just not how I'm wired. A good nap for me, if I get really tired and exhausted, I can sleep for like 12 minutes right? I mean, for some of you, that's like, that's nothing. That's not even the preamble to the nap. I mean, you want to nap and you want, you have to block off four hours of your time, but I'm just not that way. It's just not the way I'm wired. And I'll show you why that's important here in a second, but it, but kind of doesn't matter about how you're wired because this is a virtue. We're in this series called rule your life. And the idea is if you don't rule your life, your life will rule you. The circumstances of your life will create a life for you, one that you may not want to be living. Your job will demand more time of you than you want to give if you don't rule your life. Your culture will demand more anxiety of you than you want to operate out of if you don't rule your life. You either rule your life or life will rule you. You either control yourself or someone else is going to control you, like maybe in a small room with bars. We either rule our lives or our lives rule us. We were on this trip recently and rented a car because I was not confident that any of my cars had the space 
to carry all my daughter's stuff to college, nor the ability to actually make it uh, 12 or 13 hours one way. We actually managed to uh, stretch a 13-hour drive into about 17 hours. <laughs> I'm really good at that. So we rented a car, and the car we rented had this amazing feature called Drive Assist. Some of your cars have that, where if you, if you, even if you do it on purpose, if you try to go over a line on the road, your handle vibrates. I didn't know it had this feature, so it kind of startled me the first time it did it, you know, when I got a little distracted and started drifting, and my steering wheel vibrated, kind of startled me. And it's also got this cool thing called cruise control. I drive old cars, and they don't have these features. But they have this cruise control feature that doesn't allow you to get too close to the car in front of you, which is kind of cool. So, in theory, it's not a Tesla, but in theory, I could hit the cruise control and use the lane assist and just kind of go. Now, some of you who have those cars, what do they do after about 30 seconds when they've noticed your hand isn't on the wheel? They'll flash and say, hey, put your hands on the wheel, dummy. You're really in charge. Don't let the driving happen by computer. But it was kind of cool. Like for, for a little brief moments at time, you could just kind of let go and the car could kind of do its thing. Now, if I had totally taken my hands off the steering wheel and just gone, uh, what would have happened? Yeah, at some point, some DOT worker wouldn't have painted the lines on the road quite right, and I would have ended up in an overpass or in a ditch or off the side of something, right? Something would have happened had I taken my hands off the wheels. Same is true in our lives. If we take our hands off the wheel of our lives, we will end up in the ditch. And you know people who just decided to let life happen, and they ended up in the ditch. And they wonder what happened. Well, hey, you didn't rule your life. Life ruled you. So as we talk about these different ideas, we've been using the metaphor of the trellis. I don't know anything about gardening. Somebody told me today that they're going to go spend some time with a family member gardening, and I thought, oh, that sounds awful, but you do you. <laughs> but the trellis, the idea of the trellis is that you have these vines, and they're guided by the trellis, and the vines are able to grow in a healthy way. They're able to reach for the sunlight, right? Does that sound right to you botanists? Sure, something like that. Now, the trellis is not the important thing, but the trellis allows the important thing to take place. It's the framework, it's the structure, it's the guidelines for your life that allow your life to grow. You are a vine. Remember John chapter 15? You are a vine, you are attached to Jesus. It allows your life to grow in a way that is whole and healthy and contributes to your well-being as a human. The structure is important in as much as it contributes to your life. Sometimes in churches, we get confused and we think it's all about the structure. And it's not about the structure. It's about the vine growing. But without the structure, the vine doesn't grow in a healthy way. So we've been using this metaphor of a trellis to talk about those elements in our lives, those guardrails in our lives, that structure in our lives to help us grow in ways that are, that are healthy. That's what it's all about. So Rest is one of those trellises. The rest. Now, I know some of you are like, okay, I need to see a scripture about this because I don't know about rest being um, a real important virtue. Fine, let me walk, let's walk through scripture. We're going to take a, a quick little stroll through four different scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. The very first thing that we see in Scripture, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. So by the seventh day, you know, we get all excited about the six days, the light and the trees and the fish and the dirt and all that. But by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. God? God rested? Wait a second. Doesn't the Bible also say God doesn't sleep or slumber? God rested? He took a nap? 
He put his feet up in a hammock like God rested? Yeah, he took a break. God took a break. In fact, that word, I highlighted the word rest because it is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop. Stop. Just stop. Stop. God stopped. Now, it's interesting because it says that God stopped, and so on that seventh day, he made that day special. This day is special, and he blessed it because he stopped from all the work of creating that he had done. So this is the very beginning. This is creation. This is in the rhythm of the universe, the way God woves together the universe. God created this concept of rest. Here, I'm giving you seven days. I want you to work hard on six of them, but on a seventh day, I want you to just take a break. Take it easy, right from the beginning. This is before any covenant. This is before Moses. This is before Jesus. This is before the cross. This is before anything Paul wrote. He just wove this into the fabric of the universe as a rhythm for how human beings should exist. It's pretty fascinating. Just rest, rest. Well, it goes on, actually, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Bruce referenced this last week as he talked about the ten words. And he said, hey, you need to remember the Sabbath or the day of stopping. You need to remember that day of stopping by keeping it special. You need to remember that. Now, he's getting into something a little bit more intricate and detailed. This is part of the covenant that God was making specifically with the Hebrew people. And we've gotten all weird about the Sabbath day. And somehow back in the day, someone along the way said, you know what? I think for Christians, the new Sabbath day is Sunday and therefore you can't do anything on Sunday. You remember Bruce talked about last week that one of his minor roadblocks to becoming a Christian was the idea that someone he knew taught him or told him or, or exemplified for him that you couldn't go fishing or bowling on Sundays. And he was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to live forever with Jesus in eternity if I can't go bowling on Sundays, right? But it's a misunderstanding of the Sabbath. We don't stop a full day a week like the Hebrew people did as part of our covenant with God. But this passage of Scripture references creation. It references the way the universe was created. He says, I want you as my people to take one of those days that I've given you, one of those seven, and just stop. Stop. I want you to do that. Okay, Patrick, I get that. It's in creation, and it's part of the Old Testament covenant, but we live in the New Testament. We don't have to worry about all that Old Testament stuff. Well, I don't know if we should say we don't have to worry about it. We don't maintain our relationship with God by keeping the Old Testament covenant. That's done through Christ. That's a whole theology for another time, and we'll talk about that some other day. But Jesus actually talked about rest as well. I appreciated what Kyle said about Mary and Martha. One had chosen to sit and one had chosen to work, and Jesus commended the one who had chosen to sit and learn. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is fascinating because this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. This is an invitation to discipleship. That's something you and I are called to do. You are invited to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I like that because there's times, man, I feel weary and burdened. And Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I will make your life even more miserable. No, he says, I will give you what? Rest. In fact, the Greek word here, I know I get into all the etymology of the words, but the Greek word here literally means pause. I will give you pause. I'll just give you a moment to breathe. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Doesn't that sound good? 
For those of you that feel like overwrought and anxious and have so much going on and you're not sure what's next and you're not sure what to do, doesn't that invitation to discipleship and pausing and stopping, sounds good. Rest for my soul, I like that. So it's part of the invitation to discipleship. And then finally, the author of Hebrews writes about this because he uses a lot of Old Testament metaphors and gives us new ideas about them. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, the author of Hebrews says, hey, there still remains a Sabbath, a stopping rest for all God's people. And so we as humans, as disciples, we look forward to a day that is totally different. But a time of resting, a period of stopping now is a foretaste of what we look forward to in the future. There remains, we're looking forward to something down the road, but it's a foretaste. It's so fascinating. So think about this. Some Christians read the verses like this and they're like, yeah, that's right. We need to work, 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 work. I'll rest when I'm dead. Well, yeah, and you will probably be dead much sooner if you don't rest. That's true. Rest is woven into creation. It's woven into the covenant, the first covenant that was fulfilled in Christ. It's woven into discipleship. It's woven into our anticipation of eternity. It's part of all of that. It's, it's an invitation for us to exist in this, this work hard, but it's not work hard, play hard. That's our messed up culture. It's work hard, rest well. And we need to explore what that is and what that means. It's almost like God knew that we would struggle with resting. And so he incorporated it into every part of his expectation for the people who would follow after him. One of your favorite Psalms, Psalm 23, have you ever noticed this? Psalm 23, it says that in verse 2, he makes me lie down. If you don't have toddlers, that probably doesn't make sense. Why would you have to make somebody lie down? God makes you lie down. God, I don't want to. I got stuff to do. I got the bread of anxious toil to eat. No, 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 no. I got it under control. You just take a little rest there, big boy. We are wired by God for a rhythm of work and rest. And here's an, it's just an amazing feature. Think about this. You can be, and some of you are, the most type A, pro productive, get things done, master of your own soul, captain of your own ship. You're the person that just accomplishes things. You can be that person, but still, for about six to eight hours every night, you have to be unconscious, whether you want to or not. Every day, every day. No, I'm captain of my own soul. Okay, captain, why don't you have a little snooze and you can recharge overnight? No, I got things I got to do. Good luck. Try to stay awake for more than 24 hours. You can do it in college, but after that, you're sunk. No, but I've got a to-do list that needs to get done. Okay. <laughs> have fun doing that while you're unconscious and completely vulnerable. You have to. Whether you want to or not, you have to rest. But some of you still can't understand that. In fact, some people have tried and failed to get out of this rhythm of resting. Da Vinci famously tried to come up with a new way of, like, resting and re-energizing, and it just it doesn't work. We were just wired to rest. We were wired that way. However, we live in a culture where busyness is a status symbol. And so we live in a culture that wants to work against this godly biblical idea of rest. Tim Kreider wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times almost a, a 
decade ago. It's called The Busy Trap. Look it up. It's, it's delightful. It's a, a wonderful little essay. And he talked about busyness. He said, when you talk to somebody and you're like, how are you doing? And they're always like, oh, busy, busy time of year, crazy busy, work's busy. Kids, you know, man, it's busy. You know, that's always part of the standard answer people have for life. It's just busy, right? We're always busy. And it's all, well, this is a busy season. Well, you know what happens at the next season? The next season's busy too. We always got a busy season. It's always busy. But he said, busyness as an answer to how are you doing is very obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And I think that's true because there's a little guilt in our society about not being busy enough. The stats are bad. Over the last 70 years or so, they had to actually fight for a 40-hour work week. But over the last 70 years, our work weeks have crept back up. And so the average person works somewhere about 47 hours a week, which many of you in here would be like, 47 hours a week? That would be a short week for me. I got way more than that. I get it. I get it. And I'm not trying to compare you to somebody else. You know, maybe you're retired and you're like, I got too much time on my hands. Well, we'll talk about that in a second too. But whatever your situation is, our culture is designed not to allow this rest. Now, it's getting a little better. You've run into people who have a sense of meditation and mindfulness. That's becoming a little bit more accepted. But our culture is not designed to allow you to rest. If you allow me to be vulnerable for a moment, and this is a reflection of my personality too, and our culture, but I like people to be happy with me. And so when people ask me to do something, I want to say yes in order to make them happy with me. So that fills up my schedule pretty quickly. And also, there's sort of an assumption in the air about ministers. We only work on Sundays, you know? So you're just, yeah, I just get up here and I just wing it, you know? I just hope that whatever slides show up there are something I can talk about, right? I just make it up as I go. Uh, No, there's a lot of work that goes on during the week. But I was really overly sensitive to that idea of being perceived as busy. And so you know how I would try to make myself seem busy to people at church? By being busy, by just filling up my schedule. So every night of the week, I would have something. Every day, I would have stuff so I could not only look busy, but look busy by actually being busy. Probably the most ridiculous example is this a few years ago when I was doing youth ministry. I had scheduled to take the kids to the amusement park, to Valley Fair, So I had the whole youth group at Valley Fair with me, but then I also had to preach that Sunday, and I hadn't been able to get to my sermon, so I brought all my preaching preparation stuff to Valley Fair, and then we were also fostering at the time, and I was like, man, I don't want to saddle Kareen with all six kids, so I'm going to take the two oldest, and I'll be a dad to them at Valley Fair so we can have a little bit of time together at Valley Fair while I watch all the teens and work on my sermon. I I have learned through trial and error it's hard to work on a sermon on a roller coaster. <laughs> I can tell you which sermon that was, but it's not a memorable one. It's not a good one. I mean, it's, it wasn't well thought through. It wasn't well developed. Uh, how, how good of a youth minister do you think I was that day? Not a good youth minister. You think I, as a youth minister, knew exactly where all the youth group kids were at any given time? I did not. I can say that now because I'm not a youth minister anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I hope you have a cell phone. Call 911 if something comes up. Was I a good dad that day? No. I was talking to Corrine about this. It's time in our lives. And and I actually thought about having her come up and interviewing her about like, hey, how was it when I was so busy? Um, But she's, I didn't. Um, (laughs) She made a face when I said, hey, do you want to come up and talk about it? She made a face so that, you know, after 21 years of marriage, I interpret that to mean like I don't really want to. 
But she said that was the most unhealthy time in our family. The most unhealthy time in our family. But I'm busy. My life is full. I got stuff going on. Look how productive I'm in. I'm getting things done. I'm eating the bread of anxious toil. There's no rest. There's no margin. I did way too much, but I, I made up for it by doing it all very poorly. <laughs> I thought it was a virtue to be busy and felt guilty to be rested, but I was missing out on exactly what God has taught us in, the, in his scriptures from beginning to end, that rest is a virtue that inhabits and propels and makes possible the other virtues that he's asked us to live out. But even our rest isn't restful. Cal Newport, who wrote Digital Minimalism, talks about how there's such a thing as high-quality rest. We don't have high-quality rest. We rest because we start being burnt out at work, and so we got to scroll on social media for a little bit, but that's not restful. We're not being restored. We're not figuring out how to be refreshed. Even our rest isn't very restful. I mean, we're doing stuff, but it's not rejuvenating us. And honestly, I think our biggest problem, for some of you in the room, it's not so much that you cannot rest, and it's not so much that you don't understand work is important, it's that you have not figured out how to distinguish between the two. And so you're answering work emails on your phone at dinner. You're hopping on a Zoom call while you're on a family vacation because I just got to do this real quick thing this one time and I just got to do this. Our, our rest isn't restful. Teenagers, my, my teenagers sometimes try to do homework and watch Netflix. How well is that homework getting done? Hmm, why are you, why are you not getting good grades? Yeah, you can quote the office, but your grades are terrible. You're doing it all, but you're doing it poorly. Now, let me say real quick, a quick word about the idea of laziness, right? Laziness is something, we don't don't want to be lazy. The Bible talks a lot about laziness. Proverbs has these really vivid parables or, or Proverbs about laziness. But busyness is when work is out of control, dominating our lives and causing damage to important areas of our lives, like our family and our mental health and our well-being. That's when we're, that's busyness. Laziness is when leisure is out of control and damaging other parts of our lives and causing problems. They're both two sides of the same coin because busyness and laziness both chew up our time without regard to our priorities. That's all they do. Both of them are problems. One's not a better problem to have than another. They're both problems and they both need to be dealt with with some structure and rhythm in our life. Almost as if God had created a rhythm of work and rest and woven it into the fabric of the universe. Hmm, interesting. I'm not like, uh, I don't know how to read music, but maybe some of you do. Some of you I know do. But you guys know this song? Anybody know this song? Yeah. Repeats hallelujah a lot. I wonder what it's called. It's called the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's such a moving piece of music that when it was first performed, King whoever, George the something or other, stood up. While it was being performed, I don't know if it was George, I have no idea, don't quote me on this history, but whoever it was at the time stood up because it was so moving. They were like, this, this Handel's Messiah was an amazing piece of music, and they started singing the Hallelujah Chorus, and the king was like, I gotta stand, this is incredible, amazing. And he stood, and the whole crowd stood, and now they've been doing it for centuries. You stand during this, this portion of the, the performance. But you all know it, you know how it goes, you got it in your head, you know, the whole, it's a whole choir singing, it's loud, and it's powerful, like it's, the choir's turned up to 11, right? 
So you sing the hallelujah, and then do you notice those little musical, you got the notes for each part, but do you notice the little doohickey in the middle? I think it's officially called a doohickey, right? That's music guys, that's what you call it. Um, Everybody's supposed to stop singing right there. You're supposed to stop. And it sounds amazing when everybody in unison sings loud and then stops. And if one choir member's like, no, I'm going to give it my all. This is my moment to shine. I'm going to plow right through that. I'm just going to sing anyway. It ruins the song. Or if one member says, you know what? I'm just not going to sing. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to stop the whole time. That's going to be awful too. It's this combination of singing and stopping that makes the music beautiful. Do you know what that stop is called? What the musical term for that stop? It's called a rest. We're supposed to rest. It's part of the way the world works. But here's a funny question. What is, what is rest? What is rest? That's kind of a weird question, right? Like, what do you mean, what is rest? <laughs> rest is when I am on the couch and unconscious, right? That's rest. Well, is it really? Because if you think about it, it's not really easily defined. Because we think about work as like maybe doing manual labor or maybe being in front of our computer, you know, answering emails or filling out spreadsheets or whatever it is. And rest is watching Netflix or, you know, laying in a hammock or something like that. But it's not really that simple. So, for example, is exercise rest? Oh, see, we got different answers. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are some exercises that I find rejuvenating and restful. There are some exercises that would drain me, and I would hate doing them. I think going for a hike, ah, I love it. I I know it sounds so cheesy. It's so funny because it's like such an old man thing to do. Like when I was a kid, people would be like, yeah, let's go hiking out in the forest. Like, what are you, 80? But I like it now, and I guess it's because I'm getting older. Like I love being out in the forest, and I'm like, this is beautiful. This is so restful. This is, if I I like, hey, family, you want to go hiking with me? Mm Mm-mm. That does not sound restful to them. They're not interested in that. That does not cause (laughs) rejuvenation and rest in them. How about golf? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, 21 holes of golf. Is that a thing? 18 holes of golf? Whatever whatever the right number is. (laughs) Not very good at that. Whatever the right number of golf holes is. Is that restful for some of you? Yeah, for some of you, you would hate it. You're like, I spent 80 bucks on this? This is awful. What about socializing? I find socializing rejuvenating. Kareen finds socializing draining. Even socializing with me, really, she finds draining. Maybe I'm the common denominator here if I think about it. But it's just different. It's different things for different people. It's tough. But what about when you have small children? Oh, my goodness. That's 24-7 work. You remember, like, when your kids take a nap, it's just like... You know, my favorite time of day is when my kids are unconscious, right? You know, it's something about being a parent. Like, I don't know why it's like that. It's so tiring. But what about when your employment requires you to work for 80 hours a week and that's just part of it and you have to do it and you don't have a choice? I mean, you're going to lose your job if you don't work those 80 hours. You don't have time for rest. You're on call. You have to be late. What if you work at a hospital? You don't get to rest if you have to work overnight. People need help. Like, there's all kinds of questions. I get it. There's all kinds of questions. So, to answer those questions, we are going to do a whole series about rest, stopping the Sabbath next May. I know we have to to be continued next May. I know it's a long ways off, but it fits in the rhythm of the sermon schedule. So we're going to explore that more next May. For now, this is what rest is. It's creating and protecting space in your schedule for restoration. It's creating, you have to fight things off, and protecting space in your schedule 
for restoration. Does it have to be a 24-hour period like our ancient Hebrew ancestors did? I don't, I don't think so. Is that a bad idea? No, not at all. That would be great. Can you, manage, can you swing 24 hours rest? Great, do it. Could it be an hour in the morning, an hour at night? Could it be six hours on a weekend? It can be all kinds of things, but it's creating and protecting, and it's not working. It's distinguished. It's not answering work emails. It's shutting your laptop off. It's maybe turning your phone off and just resting. It's building that trellis that creates the opportunity for us to be restored and rejuvenated. Let me give you three things. We're going to wrap up with these. This will be quick, and then we're going to invite our worship team back up on stage. But three things that rest is that you need to know. This is like the, the concept of rest. We can talk about the details later. You can ask me, how, how do I rest now? Patrick, how do you do it? But three things. Number one, rest is an act of trust. It's saying that I, I can pause and I can stop and I can let God take care of me. God's proving to me that he is a good God and he will provide for me and the sun will rise and the sun will set and the universe will keep on going even if I take a break. It's an act of trust. Secondly, and this is incredibly important in our culture, rest is an act of resistance against our culture who wants to dominate your time and your attention. Rest is an act of rebellion. This is so good because you get to be a rebel. You're at church on a Sunday morning. You probably don't think of yourself as a rebel, but you get to be a rebel in our culture because you get to choose to rest as an act of resistance against our culture who wants to dominate everything about you, your time, your attention, your energy, your resources, your money, everything. They view you as a commodity, and you're saying, I'm not going to allow myself to be viewed that way. I'm going to resist. And rest is also an act of recentering, and it puts God back at the center, the way God designed us to be, to live, and to function, and he goes back in the center. There's a uh, theologian, maybe a couple of you have heard of him, by the name of D.A. Carson, and he's one of those, like, I think of theologians as these dry, stuffy, you know, nobody wants to crack open a commentary and read about theology, unless you're trying to rest and go to sleep. But he has this great quote, and he was actually talking about doubt because he was talking about how dependent our faith is on these rhythms of rest and work. And he said, sometimes the most godly thing, or sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. So good. So true. I know some of you, maybe like me, struggle sleeping. I don't sleep well. That's not something I've ever been good at. Some of you sleep great, and you need to, you know, put some parameters on your sleep a little bit. But sometimes the most godly thing we can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. So lots more to come. Next week, we're actually going to talk about the antithesis of this a little bit. So if you're feeling like, Patrick, man, I, I don't know, everybody's just going to quit their jobs and sleep all week. Nah, don't worry. We got more to talk about next week because we have a culture that wants to dominate our leisure time as well, and we don't rest well, and we'll talk about that next week. But for now, sometimes the most godly thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep.